0: Hello and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. My name is Jeremy Gordon and I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Troy Asset Management's James Harris. James is the lead manager of a growing number of income portfolios, including the 760 million Trojan Global Income Fund and Securities Trust of Scotland, after Troy won the mandate to run the Investment Trust in 2020. Troy, as a firm, very much positions itself as protecting investors' wealth during volatile market conditions, much like we have today, making now a good time to talk to James and see how that's been working out. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, we've seen quite a downturn in markets recently. And in your latest fund fact sheets, you, you discuss a recent trip to the U.S., meeting all sorts of companies in person for the first time in a long time. Did you come away feeling optimistic or not? Well, it's funny you should say that, um, and and it's a it's a it's a good question because I think most
1: fund managers, most global fund managers, anyway, if they're lucky enough to be able to, should go to the states once a year at least because you get there. Well, because it makes it stops you being too bearish because you get and you think this is fantastic, the economy is so big and everyone's so bullish and the businesses are so fantastic, and and you usually come away really enthused and and full of ideas and. It was great to go back to New York and go back to the States and to meet lots of companies. But I have to say that it didn't have quite that effect this year. Uh, the companies themselves were a good deal more downbeat than usual. I mean, still, you know, they're still optimistic in America because that's their way. But um, they were seeing a lot of inflationary pressure at every level of their businesses. They're all preparing for a more difficult time. Jamie Dimon, the, the boss of um, JP Morgan, described it as a, as a hurricane on the, on the horizon that's coming this way. Uh, and, and maybe they should, should be a bit more careful. Interesting enough, the only business where things were absolutely booming was Canadian National, who moved commodities around the states. Um, and uh, they were—they're a artistic. railroad company, are they? Indeed, yes. Um, but otherwise, I came away thinking crumbs. You know, that these businesses are beginning to uh, to recognise that there is a um, a more difficult period coming.
0: Okay, and was it? I mean, did that recall any previous times you, you'd gone over, or, or it was know, more? Even, it, it was more bearish, was it? It was more
1: marked than it had been in previous times, because I do think you know we're. We've moved into a different world, really. We've moved into a world where we have the end of free money. And, you know, that's just a fundamental change uh, and is going to have big macro and micro implications. And the micro implications are microeconomic, i.e. company specific, are being picked up by the management teams of these companies. And so, they're, you know, they're preparing themselves for a more difficult time.
0: OK, I, mean, I suppose coming away from that... Um... Have you have you been doing anything anything? We can, we can talk about your funds in more detail shortly. But have you been doing anything more differently, or is that just something you you, have, you bear in mind?
1: We um, well, the first point to make is that Troy, as you well know, is known for seeking to preserve capital as well as grow it year on year, and we're we're always thinking as much about the downside as we are about the upside. And you may have heard me uh, say this before, but bubbles are problematic as an investor because you can look like a fool before the bubble or you can look like a fool after the bubble. It's generally speaking much better to be look like a fool before, even though it doesn't feel like it. So 12 or 18 months ago, you know, we were pretty cautious about the outlook. We were positioned for that. Um, we were invested in a number of businesses which felt to be resilient and um, uh, um, durable and that we could say something sensible about what they might look like in three, five, seven, ten 10 years' time. But they weren't really the, the, the companies that the market was excited about and therefore our performance looked pretty pedestrian. But since things have got more difficult, then things have come our way. To directly answer our questions does it mean that we've changed the way we do things. The answer is no, because we've always focused on quality businesses. And by that, we mean businesses that are a high return on capital employed, that are sustained by, sustain, by identifiable competitive advantages. Now, the best defense from a more inflationary time is those same competitive advantages, which allow you to raise prices over time without unduly diminishing the demand for your products. And we have Seen that come through in our companies, and I'm happy to talk in more detail about how we think about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, g- can you give a couple of examples of companies that have been able to rise, raise prices? Well, the,
1: it's interesting because a lot of people have been very downbeat on the stable sector for a long time, on the basis they think that brands have had, had their day and that companies are growing less quickly and that their competitive advantages are being eroding. And, and at the margin, all of that is true. One of the things about, for instance, consumer staples companies is that they've been dealing with inflation for decades. Uh, in terms of time, I and mean, they've been dealing with inflation in emerging markets serially forever, and so they, they understand how they do it. they understand how it works. they understand how to raise the price. Furthermore, they have inherent competitive advantages relating to brands, relating to scale, relating to distribution, um, scope and, and, and density. Uh, and, this give, and, and of course, their products are you know, they're staples for a reason. They're things that people habitually buy. And so they're often viewed companies like this as, as nominal bonds. Uh, as correlated with interest rates, whereas, in fact, they're much more like index link bonds because over time, they can ra- raise price. Uh, and so if you looked at the most recent results from staples, um, consumer staples companies that we own, they've been pretty robust, um, not surprisingly, some more so than others. So for instance, a company like Hershey that we own which dominates the US chocolate market. You know, when chocolate is the, is the quintessential impulse buy, when you feel feeling a bit low and you want to borrow chocolate, you don't care that much how much it costs. Uh, and Hershey's done very well. As a result, it has, it has explicit, obvious pricing power. Other companies in the sector, such as, I'm sure we might come on to Unilever, um, uh, do have pricing power, but they have to demonstrate it over longer periods because they don't have such explicit pricing power. Um, but overall, you know, the sector's been pretty robust and we would expect it to continue to be so.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that probably is something we'll come back onto. Let's zoom out a bit and talk a bit more kind of, what you specifically do in your funds, you talked about this focus on quality companies across Troy. Um, How do you, you know, in the Trojan Global Income Fund and Securities Trust of Scotland, uh, how do you kind of take that and run with it? Are are you just looking at the same universe of companies and then picking out the highest yielding ones or how's it work?
1: (laughs) No, if only were that simple.
0: Um,
1: uh, And just for for a second, we've been talking about about, um, inflation and and, various things. You know, we're not managing the portfolio Based upon inflation forecast. It's, it's important people understand that. But inflation is, is relevant to the backdrop, and I'm sure we'll, we'll return to it. But to answer your question, what, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is produce above-average returns relative to our peers with below-average volatility. And the way we try and do that at Troy is we try to invest in a, in a portfolio, a fairly concentrated portfolio, 33 stocks in portfolio, of exceptional, resilient, high-quality companies. And then we allow those businesses to compound over time. We have very low turnover at Troy of about ten percent. Actually, it's been nine percent since two thousand sixteen. But across our funds, which means that our holding periods are about ten years. And we firmly believe that having a high quality settled portfolio that you're allowed to compound is how you make real money, rather than the continuous buying and selling of shares. So high quality portfolio in the first place, very low turnover, uh, and concentrating on businesses that we think are inherently pretty resilient, pretty predictable, and in that way, it, it. that leads to us producing the sort of return profile um, which I described.
0: Mm. And where do dividends come into that? Well, because we
1: want to have a balance between, between uh, income and, and, and capital growth. So we, uh, you, you touched on the, the universe at Troy. We have about 170, 180 companies globally that we use to populate our portfolios. Uh, and we have a multi asset fund, the Trojan Fund, we have a UK income fund, we have a global equity fund, the global income fund. They're, also, they're all various very sort of slightly different flavors but they're all very much identifiably Troy portfolios. Um, we also, of course, uh, have a global scope and a need to produce income. So in a nutshell, what we end up doing is we, over the last few years, and in fact, my personal track record going back 16 years, we've delivered about 27 to 3% in terms of income and about 6% in terms of capital growth. And we've done it with some of the lowest volatility, if not the lowest volatility in the sector. So what we're seeking to do really is that for those with irreplaceable capital and in need of income, and those two things often coincide in retirement, we want to be producing people enough income so they can cover their day-to-day expenditure, but also by the rule of 72, double their capital every sort of 10 to 12 years. Um, yeah. uh, and that, that's what we have delivered over the years.
0: Okay. Well, so that, you know, that, that adds up to maybe 9% analysed ret- ret- returns, and that, that's been during a period where inflation has, has been very low. Um, yeah, that it, it has been an extraordinary period for global equities, um, where managers focusing on all-out growth have delivered much higher returns on that. Do do you think people do need to wake up to the, the fact that that's that's not going to continue?
1: Well, it's very interesting. There's two parts of that question. It's is 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 nine percent a, a decent return, and secondly, you know what 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 the outlook might be facing relative to the past. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. In the ten years, I, I mean, you may recall I was uh, uh, um a previous employer before where I ran a global income fund for 10 years. Yeah, We reduced that sort of return. But because that period um, contained the global financial crisis, we were 2% ahead of the benchmark broadly for the global index over that 10-year period. Um, we were the top performing in the sector. We reached 5 billion pounds. Someone had to mention it. Um, and everyone thought it was fantastic. The return we generated since we've been at Troy is about the same. It just looks rather more pedestrian, as you suggest, relative to the index, which has been incredibly buoyant. Now, my contention to you would be that uh, both conservative investing and income investing tend to wax and wane in terms of their popularity, dependent upon what the market overall is delivering you. When it's delivering high double digits, then both the sorts of returns that we generate, plus the balance between income and capital which we offer, both get a bit lost in these fantastic amounts of money that everybody are making. But we have to remember it's been an absolutely extraordinary period. We've had basically um, zero interest rates and virtually zero inflation allowing governments and central banks to have incredibly positive and supportive policy, both monetary and fiscal, which has led markets to lead up to a point where they were, on some measures, more expensive than they've ever been, and are certainly towards the upper end of the historic valuation range. And so from here, it would strike me that if you can, not every year, not guaranteed, not in a straight line, but say that your portfolio is both compounding capital at a much higher rate than the underlying market, which we are, and can have a forward expected return idea, you know, we're producing a 5.5% percent pre flow yield, which we think will pretty consistently around about 5%, leading you to this sort of 9 to 11% overall expected return. Well, if we, can, if we can offer that at a time of great uncertainty uh, and in a way that doesn't scare people too much because the volatility is quite low, particularly for folks with, with irreplaceable capital and need of income, well, I think that all makes a great deal of sense in terms of where one might consider allocating capital.
0: Okay, interesting. Well, so I suppose do, we've already... Brought it out a bit, but to bring out your your process a bit more to make it a bit more concrete, I'll give you an easy one first. What's an example of a stock where you, you feel it's worked particularly well? And then, how about a stock where where you feel the process has gone wrong a bit, and you've maybe had to sell out or make a change?
1: Yeah. So a, a good example would be something like ADP. This is a, an outsourced HR um, software business in the United States. Um, these are lovely businesses. The impetus to outsource your HR function gets greater as the complexity of HR. Uh, increases, and therefore companies can use it from a positive perspective because if you do a good job in terms of HR, it's a you know recruitment. And from a negative perspective, you get it wrong; it's it's increasing your liability. So the impetus to outsource it is increasing. It, it, it remains fairly underpenetrated. Lots of companies haven't yet done this. It's a very fragmented industry, and ADP's one, if not the best. ADP and Paychex both absolutely excellent companies. We have both. We bought this pretty much in the teeth of the financial crisis, in the most recent financial crisis. Uh, um, sorry, a COVID crisis. Um, in March 2020, uh, because obviously people were very, very worried about uh, prospects for employment quite reasonably. But our view was, first of all, we felt this business would be far more robust than many expected. And secondly, that the time to be buying a business like this, surely, that's focused on on recruitment and people, is when people are most bearish on that particular sector. And so we were able to buy it on a a very attractive cash flow yield, and it's done very well for us since then. This is where business, in terms of the balance between income quality and growth, high returns of capital that generates consistent growth that it generates, the capital-like business model, it's a software business effectively. That's exactly the sort of thing that we want to be doing. And so that's what, so we're very happy with that whole thing.
0: Thanks, James. What, what about the example of a quote's work less well? Well, we had an investment in a business
1: called IG Group, um, which is a UK spread betting business. And we, um, it has, the, because it's dominant in its sector, it has the tightest spreads that it offers its uh, um, customers and therefore has a sustainable competitive advantage. We felt that it was excellent, you know, really well placed to um, not only dominate the sector but also take advantage of or allow um, other uh, um, customers to take advantage of a more volatile period. And I think we, I think we got that right. You know, going into into the problems created by COVID, this business was trading very, very nicely, um, uh, and remained to an, in our eyes very inexpensive and, and well placed. Unfortunately, the company then did a uh, an acquisition of a company called Tasty Trade, which was a recently um, established futures and options broker and uh, education platforms, they call it. it, struck me as more like a sort of YouTube channel. Um, and they paid a billion dollars, 8.6 times sales and raised a load of equity to do it, um, which we weren't very happy about not least because the um, they did it using a piece of COVID legislation, which meant they could raise that amount of capital without having to ask the shareholders. So we weren't very happy about that, both with regards to the, the deal that they'd done or the manner in which it had been done. And so we ultimately, having, having expressed our view to the company, uh, decided to sell, so that was an example where we we went in. I think for the right reasons, but something changed and caused us to change our mind.
0: Okay. And another fairly recent sale is Fever Tree. Is, is that right in some of your portfolios? Uh, only in the um, in Securities Trust of Scotland. Okay.
1: We held Domino's Pizza in the open-ended strategy, which we love. Yeah. Um, we um, couldn't buy more Domino's Pizza because we own a lot of it as a house, but as some stock became available, we switched Fever Tree into uh, Domino's so that the two, the open-ended structure and the closed-ended structure are now aligned. So I it's see. Not a particularly brilliant example.
0: Okay then, and well, you, you don't buy to buy and sell too often in general. But Admiral, uh, the insurer, is quite a recent buy. How does that fit with your approach?
1: Yeah. So, um, w- well, first of all, we funded it from um, GSK, BlackSmith lane um, which is you know is is known as a blue chip in the UK market. Uh, and you know we've had a long history of this business, but it, it it would be towards the bottom end of the sort of quality companies that we would like to own in the portfolio. And for a number of reasons, it's done really well because, of course, they're splitting off their consumer arm, which Unilever bid for, which I think highlights the value in that area because the dollar's been very strong and they've got a lot of dollar earnings, obviously, because they're inherently splitting up and, and, and um, dropping their dividend and right-sizing the um, capital structure of both businesses. I think, generally speaking, the market's been more, more bullish on that company and the shares have performed very well. But at the same time, Admiral Group had Done very poorly because um, it's gone up a lot during COVID because we were all paying, I, I'm, a, I'm a customer of Admiral coincidentally, so we we're paying I. our premiums without without driving anywhere and so share price did this and then that's all com- completely come out so to speak. So it was very timely from both an income and capital perspective to be switching one into the other. The thing about admirals is really interesting, it's not the sort of business we would generally go for, insurance companies tend to be quite uh, complicated, quite opaque, um, but it's a bit of an exception to the rule and I must say I've been a bit remiss in this because I've known all of Admiral Group, not least as a customer, for years, but I hadn't really. Um, we have an analyst on our UK income team called Anna Rudy Kulkarni, who did a really excellent piece of work and teased out on you know, what makes this a special business. Um, and I haven't fully appreciated that. And the reason it's a special business is, is, is grounded in this because it, 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 it concentrates on a cohort, which I'm afraid to say I am no longer a part, which is young men in fast cars. <laughs> what this means is that they have a great data set for this area. They're able to price for that. And very unusually, and most importantly, it means that they make an, a profit on their underwriting through the cycle. It's actually very unusual for an insurance company. Usually they make a loss on their underwriting and they make up the profits. Because they're able to make a profit on their underwriting over the cycle, they then they then offload the insurance risks to Munich reap um, which is a which is a big ponderous low return Munich, uh, German reinsurer that we wouldn't we wouldn't own in the portfolio. So Admiral offload the risk but keep the profitability. They're also very, very tight on costs. It's a very tightly managed business. So you, you put all that together, a particular data set, leading to particular pricing, which leads to particularly profitable underwriting, uh, a low cost base, uh, uh, and having outsourced the insurance risk, it, it makes for a very high return on equity business, very limited capital requirements, and to us a very, an exceptionally high quality you know, uh, uh, income contributor to the portfolio. Mm. So you know, we, were, we were very happy that we were able to buy it at about 12.8 times um, price to earnings. And uh, that looks very inexpensive to us and we'd probably like to hold it for 10 years or more.
0: Yeah. Okay, thanks. Let's talk about Unilever a little bit because it's it's a stock that kind of might exemplify Troy's approach and it hasn't really been doing well for a few years. It's been attacked by some other fund managers. What do you think has been going wrong at Unilever and what, what do you want to see improve? Or, or well, has it been unfairly maligned? Well, it's a bit of I mean, let's think about it. So, So... There are lots
1: of things to like about Unilever. I mean, after all, it's generated a a, a very attractive return on capital employed for a long period of time, although it's come down a little bit still high relative to many other businesses. It has lots of the sort of attributes that we're looking for in business in the sense that it has um, repeat um, familiar staples type products that people buy habitually uh, and um, become very attached to. It has an amazing brand and broadness and depth of distribution, notably in emerging markets, which is basically impossible to to replicate or to build out unless you throw an incredibly large amount of money and an awful long time at. It has a range of large identifiable popular brands um, and you put all that together and it represents a very attractive global income asset. If we're looking for something that could reliably dependably um, generate a return between income and capital over time uh, and grow the income um, derived from uh, high returns on capital employed it themselves supported by identical Identifiable competitive advantages. Well, TIP Uni was all of those things. Um, it is true that it's had a bit more of a difficult time recently, um, and that's for a number of reasons. The first is, is it, it's it's not unusual for these businesses to over time alter their portfolio. You know, the way you run a Staples business is you, you know, you you basically run your winners and you cut your losers, or you you um, grow your flowers and pull up the weeds, or whatever, whatever however you want to describe it. But they they do manage their portfolio so that. The businesses or the, the brands are becoming a bit less current or growing, but slowly they tend to sell and then they buy in newer, more exciting um, uh, areas or brands that they can then put through their distribution platform and make a lot of money out. So when Unilever has been doing this, arguably, it could have done it a bit more aggressively with a bit more zip. Um, you, know, you look at a company like P&G, which was in a similar position to my mind where Unilever was a few years ago, where it was seen as a bit sluggish and a bit... Dull and um, brand, their brands are quite not at the cutting edge and, and they required a bit of heavy lifting, a bit of um, streamlining and increasing in productivity. And they did do that. And the PNG share price has done it very well as a result. And I think perhaps the similar thing could be said of, of Unilever. It could, it could potentially have done a bit more. I think in their defence, you know, they've got a big, as I say, emerging market footprint. It's very easy for us all to forget that COVID hit emerging markets very hard and it still hits emerging markets hard. You know, there's articles in The Economist this weekend about, Terrible things that uh, um, you know—the lack of education that many people have suffered as a result of COVID, notably right. in markets—and it just reminds us that this is this hasn't gone away, uh, and you know hopefully it will at some point we'll get it will be in the rearview mirror and Unilever Unilever will benefit from that, and you could argue that they've been a little bit lackluster in their communication and so on, but I, I wouldn't want to overplay that. I think I think actually you know often the narrative can follow the share price because share price hasn't been doing so well. People get down on both the management team and the company, and I think somewhat unfairly perhaps. So. You know, we're, we're we're happy to continue to hold that business. And I suspect we will do for some time to come. We're looking forward to some, some better years ahead. When, okay. you, when you look at the current valuation, it looks very attractive.
0: Yeah. So you, 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 well, you, well, you say it's part of their model, kind of buying in growth. You, you support their kind of slight, I think maybe it, it, it's sort of maybe healthcare and beauty areas they want to go towards a bit more. Uh, something you know, your, uh, Terry Smith uh, has criticised. Says they don't know anything about it. But you, you support them, them moving into those higher growth areas. Well, I just think that it's it
1: is perfectly normal for these businesses to to offload some of the slower growing areas and to buy yeah. other areas which are growing more quickly uh, and use their distribution power to to make a lot of money out of those areas. So, so um, yeah, I think it's I, I don't think it's that surprising.
0: Okay. Um, Thanks, James. We'll, we'll just, it, it, uh, for, for the benefit of the, of the listeners, I, I probably should have done this earlier when we're talking about performance, but just to kind of, maybe it's, it's an appropriate moment to run through a few, a few performance figures, um, which which do hi- highlight that you've been doing well this year. So in the six months to the end of May, up 10.9% versus the 3.2% loss for the MSCI World Index, uh, and also quite a way ahead of peers in the, in the IO global sector. And that leads us to, since launch in 2016, uh, you're up 61.8 percent again to the end of may again ahead of the the sector average of 53.2 uh, percent and a bit behind uh, the 78 percent gain 77.8 percent gain for the msCI world as, as we've we've discussed um I suppose you know since you looking back to when you joined, joined Troy basically are you are you happy with, with how it's gone so far
1: well it's kind of easy to bring up performance, particularly at, <laughs>
0: at this
1: moment when it, you know, I think we're I think we're right. I think I'm right in saying we're top four to level, you know, one year, three year, five year. And yeah. if, you, if you if you add it to my previous track record, 10 year, 15 years, 16 year, you know, it's a more difficult market, it's Troy's market and our and our relative numbers are, are relatively good. So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, it goes back to what I was saying before. The, mm. the, the returns we generated are actually very consistent with both what we've done in the past and what we've done in a variety of different sort of market cycles. And if you can consistently generate the sort of return that we have done since we've been at Troy, then you'll do fine. There just will be periods when it looks a bit pedestrian. And is, we, we, The years we've recently had are, are some of those. Um, but in more difficult times, and as I mentioned back in sort of 07-08 during the global financial crisis, the sort of returns that we're generating looked excellent. So, you know, we're going to keep doing what we do, uh, and the market will no doubt keep doing what it does. But I do think that it's perfectly credible to run a strategy like this and to produce through a balance of income and growth, a perfectly decent return, both in absolute terms, but also relative to, you know, importantly relative to our peers, but also relative to the market.
0: Okay. And well, I suppose with, with strong performance, say, I mean, say, for example, you, you hold um, big positions in tobacco companies like British American, American Tobacco, which are up quite a lot in, in, in a bear market. does that put you, put you under pressure to find more new ideas than you might be ordinarily comfortable with I suppose?
1: Well I guess inheritance that in this notion that we have kind of very low turnover in our portfolios. It, it, it's not in our you know we don't continuously look to morph the portfolio for any particular kind of macro outlook or inflation outlook. We don't buy and sell companies based upon a view of what they might do in the next six months or a year. We don't stray into sectors that we think are inherently low-quality or low-return-on-capital employed. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, 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 we're we not no turnover. We are low turnover. So, we will sometimes take action. That's as a result of if a company becomes really egregiously valued. Although, if you're prepared to hold a business over a very long period of time, there will be times when it looks up with events in terms of valuation, and that's fine with us. There, there might be other times when we've got a better idea, and that's fine. The competition for capital means that we do um, take action in the portfolio. And the third is if, um, if we get it wrong, uh, and that does that does happen. Specifically with regard to your question, it's a really interesting area because um, going back twelve or eighteen months when we scaled, I'd like to think of them as nicotine consumer products companies as opposed to tobacco because they won't be tobacco companies much longer. Okay, migrating everybody onto their next gen products, which turn out to be at scale more profitable than the traditional combustible business and are taxed more lowly um, because governments quite reasonably or quite you know, sensibly, are trying to encourage people to switch from the from more harmful to less harmful product, and, and, that, and that creates better profitability. Um, we were at a time when we felt markets to be highly speculative. We wrote about it at the time. You know, We had meme stocks and SPACs and we had that space investment trust launched and incredibly high valuations and amazing. You know, Basically, what we had is something that was akin to 2000, not because it was full of um, unprofitable technology companies trading at crazy valuations, although there was plenty of that. Because the FANGs, for want of a better expression, the big high quality global technology companies are profitable, are decent businesses, are decent value. Um, uh, they don't yield very much, they're not particularly good for us, and we can talk about that. You know, we don't own the FANGs, but we don't know the companies are being disrupted by the FANGs either, so we are trying to steer a middle course, and that's been demonstrated recently. Um, but it was, it was just a time where you could, it was just transparently a very speculative time. And the reason it was like Tech 2000 is because what created the final blow off top in 2000 was the authorities acting, in my view, um, pretty recklessly because they were terrified about the Y2K problem, if you recall, you know, this idea that everything was going to crash as computers ticked over into the new millennium. Well, COVID provided the same thing, the same externality, if you like, the same deus uh, machine. Uh, the, the thing that created this, the spark for the authorities to really go for it and to have monetary and fiscal policy, which in retrospect, probably was very... Um, Irresponsible. I mean, gosh, look at what's going on in Sri Lanka. I mean that that is the that is the best example globally of what can go really badly wrong mm, if, you, if you spend money willy nilly and then print money to fund it and get economic collapse. Now that's happening in much you know in, in much less awful way in most countries around the world. They all spent money like there was no tomorrow and then uh, used printing presses effectively via uh, monetary policy to support it. And we're reaping this, we're reaping the whirlwind now because. While they were doing that and there was no inflation, that was fine. But as soon as inflation appears, you can't do that any longer. And so they're having to rein it in. Um, but having pushed asset prices to a level where their very valuation creates fragility um, because you know as, as asset prices fall, it creates all sorts of problems all over the place. As in, inflation rates go up, it creates all sorts of problems all over the place, as we're seeing, uh, and so on. Um, so so that, that was the backdrop. I know this is a long answer to your question, but it's important because at that time, they were very... There were lots of cheap assets, but there were really very few high-quality cheap assets. And you could identify perhaps oil, or mining, or banks, or nicotine consumer products companies. The difference is that the first three are not good businesses. They're inherently cyclical. They're inherently capital-intensive. They're dependent upon a commodity price everywhere, which you have no control. In the case of the banks, are highly levered. Uh, they're not the sort of businesses either that you might want to own into a downturn. Whereas nicotine consumer goods companies are excellent businesses. They have higher returns of capital, they're capital light, they have distribution, brands, all the things I've been talking about, um, and a high degree of predictability in terms of their cash flows. After all, the sort of algorithm, if you like, of mid-single-digit, high-single-digit, year-on-year EPS growth funding a, a decent and growing dividend is completely unbroken. It's completely untroubled. Um, the sector is dramatically derated, uh, obviously, as a result of the fact that it's unpalatable to some. Um, but also because of idiosyncratic um, uh, uh, occasions such as um, BAT buying the ramp Reynolds in 2016, which they paid the wrong price for. They overled their balance sheet, and it led to a big, steep decline in the share price. But what that ended up meaning is that we were able to buy into an inherently very attractive industry for a return perspective, but a very attractive valuation, at a time when the broader market itself was priced to deliver you almost nothing because of the widespread speculative um, backdrop. So it just struck us as just an incredible in idiosyncratic um, global income opportunity, and it remains so.
0: Mm, okay. Thank you. Well, I suppose moving on from tobacco, uh, something I, I had missed was that late last year you launched the Trojan Ethical Global Income Fund. Um, what you know, Tell us a bit about that. What, Why was that and how does it differ from your other funds? I guess it, one is it doesn't own tobacco, I think. Indeed. So um,
1: basically, we had a client uh, who said we like we like your approach. We like the team. We like uh, the return profile. We like Troy, um, but we don't want to invest in 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 nicotine secured products or or uh, a number of different sectors. Could would you would you would you mind launching an ethical version of the strategy box? We're like no, absolutely fine. If That's what you would like. We're very happy to do it. Um, so what we ended what what we got is a portfolio that excludes specific sectors, including alcohol and tobacco, but also other areas such as. Um, High interest lending, pornography, gambling, um, oil and gas, and so on, um, which uh, we then, you know, and armaments, which we don't then in- include in the portfolio. Now, but at the same time, we're trying to make it as consistent with the the unconstrained fund, if you like, as possible. So there are four companies that effectively we can't own in the ethical fund, which is three nicotine consumer products companies and Diageo, and we replace them with effectively the next best. Ideas that we have in the universe. Now, what we didn't do is try and replicate the kind of uh, you know, the attributes that you get from the nicotine consumer products companies because they're, they're idiosyncratically, as I think I've hoped I've demonstrated in our minds, an incredibly attractive investment, but there, there isn't anything else quite like it in the market. So, what we've done is replace them with, with other businesses that, that, that we really like. Um, but which are a little bit more expensive than tobacco or nicotine consumer product companies, because there's nothing as cheap as, as 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 tobacco. And so we end up with a with a with a portfolio that's very similar, but which is um, uh, doesn't include those particular sectors which many wish to exclude from their investments, which therefore has a slightly lower yield, but is probably growing rather more quickly. So we think we hope over the, you know in the short term it's very difficult for to, to the funds to be exactly the same, but over the longer term we suspect they'll produce quite a similar returns. Just, just made up of a slightly different balance between capital and income. Um,
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, what 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 are a couple of those next best ideas? I mean, maybe I'll mention one that I think caught my eye was uh, Universal Music. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, um, Colorplast, Christian Hansen, Universal Music would all
1: be three 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 really good examples. I mean, in terms of Universal Music, this this is an amazing business. I mean, it owns, I think I'm right in saying, a third of all music ever created, uh, as effectively a royalty on all of those songs that we all like listening to. Uh, And what's nice about that is it's kind of platform agnostic, so you don't have to work out whether it's Spotify or whether it's Apple Music, whether whatever is going to be playing the music because you own the upstream resource, if you like, you make money however people consume it. The second thing to say is that it's- So in a
0: sense, you don't have to worry about some kind of massive technological disruption. Yeah, because you you own own what everybody wants. Okay. You know, I don't know what your favorite
1: song is, but that's not going to change depending on, on what platform you're listening to, and nor me. Uh, and the second point is, it's not like Netflix, for instance, which you know the end game for a business like Netflix, where you have to continuously in an arms race for content and for eyeballs, um, means that it's actually you know the, the end game, the end state profitability for that industry may well not be attractive. Whereas for music, you know you'll listen to your favorite song again and again and again and again and again. Whereas I would say to you that there's probably only you could probably only watch Bridgerton once, if at all. Um, but um, you see, you get my point. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very different business, and, and as a result, it's it's growing pretty quickly. It's pretty attractively valued, um, and we thought it was a it was a um, an interesting asset for for this portfolio. And actually, all three of those are good examples whereby they they will all, I suspect, find their way into the unconstrained fund. Um, but at a time when the valuation of, of those businesses relative to nicotine consumer products companies may have corrected somewhat. So, so we, you know, there is a consistency about how we manage
0: bit funds. I see. Okay. Thanks very much. Well, thanks, James. I think that's everything I wanted to ask about investment. Really. Um, you know, maybe lastly, we, we can give people a bit more of a sense of of what you what, what you know what else you like to do. What I mean, so what 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 are what are some of your other interests outside fund management? Well, I mean, just first of all, thank you very much for having me on. I mean, it's
1: a really my pleasure. It's a yeah. really timely. Time for it to happen. You know, we there are many investors around the world who 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 are beginning to come around once again to a, a rather more conservative income-focused style of investment. There, there's a change of legislation in Australia, meaning that offer it. You know, We had a we had a call with one of the biggest pools of capital in the world last week. You know, it, things have changed. What, sorry, uh, can, you, can you
0: explain right. a bit more? What's that legislative change in Australia? Yeah, so the
1: regulator in the, in you'll know that in Australia have these huge superannuation funds. Right. Uh, I was asked about this in the FT last week um, and they have it turns out they fear a little bit too much growth in their portfolios it seems and therefore their performance hasn't been quite what they would like it to have been recently and of course the, the sort of underlying factor to this and related to my point about irreplaceable capital and even need of income is that the, the underlying members of those pension schemes are aging and so it's felt that they ought to offer ought to have within their cohort of managers someone who is a bit more uh, low beta, conservative, income bearing, uh, low volatility, um, which I think is fascinating as a forward-looking piece of regulation was a change in legislation um, to almost mandate offering income investing, given what you said at the beginning about whether income investing is, you know, is it attractive? Should we be doing it? How's it done relative? How should it be? I thought that was fascinating. Um, so, um, So I think that just as a sort of an expression of how things have changed and how the future looks a bit different to the past about the fundamentals in terms of it, it being an era of you know the era of free money and endless quantitative easing is over, yeah. Uh, and we're moving into a bit more of a, a sober time, if you like, a bit more of a difficult time. And I think the way we manage money will therefore is therefore coming back into vogue, back into fashion, not just within individuals but also with larger pools of institutional capital.
0: Yeah. Anyway, time will tell. Very um, interesting. Yeah,
1: it is. I think it's fascinating. Obviously. Um, so, to answer your question, what do I do when I'm not doing farm management? But I guess a bit like universal I'm music. I'm sure like you're music. a busy
0: man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yes, well, I like it that way. But um, two things really I like listening to music, which is kind of okay. equivalent to what we we're saying about universal music. Uh, and I like uh, exercise, I like running around outside. Um, and I actually think, you know, I, I, I think the benefits of exercise weren't really understood 20 or 25 years ago in terms of how important it is for your mental well being. I think we do understand it now. And, you know, as I've, we're not saving lives here, but Fun management can be quite stressful sometimes, and I think you know physical fitness and making sure that you look after yourself is an important part of managing your mental well-being as well. So I, you know, I think it's important.
0: Okay, so you're a keen runner.
1: Yeah, running, um, cycling, swimming, tennis, whatever, whatever I can find time to do.
0: Okay, good stuff. Okay, well, thank thanks very much, James. We maybe we've taken up you know enough of your your, your time, time today. Um, well, there's so- an awful lot to cover at the moment, but but thank you yeah, very much for questions. Yeah. And, um, um, yeah, speak soon. Fantastic. Well, yeah. Thank, thank, thanks again for coming on, James. Great, great to have you. And I suppose that the last thing to say from me is thank you very much, everyone, for for listening at home, and please join us again soon for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts.